Here is one of a series of talks by spiritual leader Lola McDowell Lee, spanning two decades from the early 70s through the 90s. Lola was a Zen Roshi, whose Rinzai lineage included Dr. Henry Platov and renowned Zen master Shigetsu Sasaki. Lola was a religious scholar as well as an ordained Christian minister. While the talks are focused mainly on Zen and Buddhism, Lola drew on many spiritual traditions, including those of Jesus, Plato, Lao Tzu, the Hindu Vedas, Meister Eckhart, and Gurdjieff. You know, <clears throat> there in the past, I have uh, used a um, little guy who I call a monk. And as we've gone along, he has become our monk. And he is sometimes full of absurdities, and sometimes he has a great deal of wisdom. And, uh, <clears throat> and he was of the opinion at one time that people <clears throat> just because they have eyes and a nose and a mouth and some ears that they are perfectly equipped to learn anything they want to learn. <clears throat> and he said that uh, this was an absurdity, that uh, <clears throat> a person, he felt, could not learn until he could see inside of himself that uh, to be able to perceive what he was learning and what that learning meant, you see. <clears throat> so he had this little disciple come to him one day and, and said, look, I've been with you for quite a while. And he said, I don't think I'm any nearer to the truth than I was when I got started. So um, <clears throat> I want you to tell me about the truth, you know. So uh, our monk, being a pretty good teacher, he took him to the well, <clears throat> and there was this pitcher standing on the rim of the well. Hmm? And uh, the monk, he drew a bucket of water, and he poured this into the pitcher. And then he drew another bucket of water, and he poured it into the pitcher. And he drew another bucket of water, <clears throat> and he's pouring in this third bucket of water, and the this, this disciple, he couldn't stand it any longer, and he said, <clears throat> Teacher, don't you see that the water's running out? There's, there's, there's no bottom in this pitcher. It's all running out again. And the monk draws the fourth bucket of water, and he pours it in the pitcher, and he drives up the fifth bucket of water, and he pours it in the pitcher. And this poor little disciple, he's beside himself. He's dancing up and down. Don't you see what you're doing? It's all coming out the bottom. <clears throat> and uh, the monk just glares at him and says, I'm trying to fill a pitcher. And uh, in order to see when it's full, my eyes are on the top, on the neck of the pitcher, not on the bottom. When I see that the water rises to the neck, then the pitcher will be full. What's the bottom got to do with it? Hmm? 
when I become interested in the bottom of the picture, then I'll look at the bottom of the picture too. But now I'm interested in filling the picture, and so I'll look at the neck. <clears throat> anyway, they fiddled around like this for a while longer, and of course they never did fill the picture because it didn't have a bottom. <clears throat> and the little disciple went back to his quarters, <clears throat> and he thought about it, and he puzzled about it, and he puzzled some more about it. <clears throat> and he gradually began to link it with other actions of the monk and what the monk had said previously. And finally, after about a week, he came back to his teacher and he said, Would you teach me about the picture, please? <clears throat> he said, I think I'm ready to learn. Simple little thing, huh? So now you're sitting, and your attention is where? Waiting for the uh, <clears throat> some bell to go off and say, <clears throat> say something to you, or are your eyes on the top, or your eyes are on the bottom, or is there a top, or is there a bottom? I've told you that story before. I just was cleaning out some things one day last week. I ran across it. I like it. <laughs> so you're suffering with it. But you know, take it to heart. <clears throat> Today we have and we do make a great many mental and emotional divisions. We got all kinds of boxes hidden all over the place in our minds. Just, just take a brief scan of your mind and look at all the departments you have. Mm, can you do that? Two seconds. Whew. It's just like any department store. Really. Yeah. We have religion. We got a compartment for that, little department. We sort of keep it over here where we can pick it up when we feel religious or when we've got to do something along the line with religion. <clears throat> and then at other times we shut the door on it. And then we have um, we have the department of philosophy and all the many kinds of philosophy around and about. And I would say there's close to a hundred of those. And then we come to psychology, and we have got about another hundred divisions of that time of thing. So then we, we come to science. How many sciences are there? Lots of them. And we come to such a thing as education. Man alive. 
and we come to mathematics. Look at all the departments and the divisions we have along there. We got just plain reading, just plain arithmetic, adding two and two, and then we go into um, geometry and plain geometry and some other kind of geometry, and then we've got uh, calculus and what comes after that? No, before that comes algebra. You know, on and on. Math. There's all kinds of ideas and isms. It's worse than any department store that goes on in here. Hmm? And the thing is, we, we, get, we get tunnel vision. We, we decide we like one kind of thing and we hew to it. And everything else is not even put in departments, it's just kept out. Hmm? In the Buddha's time, hmm? <clears throat> they had a name, one name, for all of this mental activity that we just enumerated. One name for all of it, all the mental activities, philosophy, psychology, mathematics, you name it. All the ideas and all the isms. You know what they called all of that? They lumped it all under one thing, Dharma. Dharma. Hmm? So this idea of uh, worshiping, what was Dharma? Mm -hmm. um, uh, thinking along a certain line in order to attain something or that in your mind you had some kind of planning, if I do this, this over here is going to happen, and that over there is going to happen, and um, I'm going to practice meditation in order to attain an immortal life, or at least I'm going to have life in heaven. All of this was included under the word dharma. Now, at the time that the Buddha lived, uh, there were 96 kinds of religions in India. So they say there were 96 points of view of the Dharma. Hmm? So today, like in Zen in Japan, a person who has haphazard ideas, you know, thinks this way and this way, and they're kind of haphazard. They're not really hewing. Uh, hmm? It's called, uh, he, that such a person is called one of the 96, or all of the 96 are within him. Uh, it, it, it's, it's a way of looking at a person who thinks carelessly. and who really doesn't do anything with himself. Um, they don't apply themselves. You know, there, there is more to be done than just think about. There is what is called application. I mean, you hear 
somebody talk about a point of view. Uh, well, let's put it bluntly here. You listen to me talk, and then you sit. And uh, so you sit there, and, and you think, well, I've got to come up with an answer for something for tomorrow or for later on or for whatever. And uh, you're either utilizing what has been said by taking the idea and applying it to yourself. Or you take something else, maybe in contrast to it, and um, throw the whole thing away. But when you sit and meditate and ruminate, and begin to try to function along that line, then you're applying it. I mean, you can go and listen to people talk, you know, forever and amen. But if you don't do something about it, it is of no avail whatsoever. You know, th you know thinking? Have you ever watched thinking? Thinking leads to more thoughts. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Anyway, every now and then, of course, you can get a mental insight, but and they're necessary too, but every now and then, thoughts should be cut off. You know, this is why they say that Manjusri uh, wheels this sword of diamond wisdom because he comes along and cuts the thought at the root where they should be cut you see but if you and he this is now wisdom that cuts the thought and uh, you know so if you ignore the thinking you can allow the wisdom in but if you're hanging on the coattails of the thoughts, you're going to more thoughts. Hmm? You've seen that happen in yourself, haven't you? I dare say. I hope so. If not, you better sit there and do just that. Now, you, you know, cut, cut the roots. And that way you allow the mind to be present. It's called the practice of no thinking. But then, of course, there is no such thing as no thinking also. And most people, when you say, you know, don't think, uh, most people are afraid of this. Because, you know, down deep, it's, there's something that's like a little bell ringing. If I don't think, I will become stupid. If I don't think, I will return to a place of ignorance. And ignorant 
I don't want to be. If I don't think there's something that might happen and I would just suddenly become like a caveman. You know. Now all of this is erroneous thinking. Hmm? Well, let me see. You've met Henry Plotoff. Do you think he was ignorant? Do you think he became a caveman? No way. But if you hide from yourself, if you hide from your mind, that's what you're doing, is hiding. And you can hide under many, many guises. Many guises. You can be struggling and struggling and struggling to apply yourself and uh, you want to know the way and you want to do this and you want to do that and at the same time hiding. For all that I say, you know, no thinking, don't think, stop the thinking, ignore the thinking. <clears throat> to really stop the thinking is an impossibility. One can ignore it while one is holding a focus because one is so intent within the focus that the thinking seems to have gone away. But of course it hasn't. It's just that we have, we're holding a focus. And then of course the minute the focus is gone, there is the thinking, it hasn't stopped. You can even see that you don't pick it up at the same place where you dropped it. It's gone on a little bit. You know, it solved a few of your problems <laughs> or gotten you deeper in the mud. <laughs> One or the other, huh? It's going around and round and round, you know. But we cannot avoid thinking. And of course we should not avoid thinking. What we should avoid is erroneous thinking. You know, as Sokian, he, uh, when he went to New York, finally, you know, he was out here on the West Coast, and then he went up to Washington, state of Washington, and then finally he went to New York, and he had this little bitty apartment, the third floor, where the L went right past his window every three minutes. And um, he could ignore it, finally. I mean, he had to, had to sit with that, coming from a monastery in Japan, out in the, Boonies and Kamakura, not so boonish. <clears throat> but, um, you know, difficult. And, the, you know, of course, too, we've got to earn a living and we've got to have, protect ourselves and we've got to have food for daily life and we've got to have shelter and we've got to have some kind of, for falling in love and falling out of love and guiding the children and whatever, huh? Yeah, so you've got to, we've got to learn to think right, correctly. You know? But remember that in all of your thinking that it is not 
the be-all and the end-all of a human being. So we strive and we must practice to attain a state of no thinking with this thinking mind. This simple thinking mind, everyday ordinary mind, is the mind that you're looking for. <clears throat> and this is the practice of meditation. But then, you see, we look, <clears throat> well, how are we going to have a true attitude of meditation? And there are so many things on which to meditate. There's thousands of things on which to meditate. besides the ones, whatever I've given you. Well, in the tradition of Zen, one first meditates on the question of what is mind. Here you live with it. You're functioning with it. It's functioning, it's function you call thinking. And that think the function of the mind drives you round and round and around. What is it that is thinking? Now, if I asked you, what is your finger? Well, you could say that's flesh and bones, and there's a nail on the end, and that's whatever. Hmm? And there's blood in there, and there must be nerves in there because I can feel it, so on. What can you say about your mind? This thing that guides you all the time, what can you say about it? I mean, is it big or is it little? Does it have a color? Does it have a shape? What is the shape of your mind? Hmm? Is it clear? Is it cloudy? Is it stormy? And what is your mind? I mean, is it some kind of a, uh, like a, a heart in here someplace? Or is it hiding in the brain? Or uh, is it the brain? Uh, what is this mind? What can you say about it? What does it look like? How does it appear? What is the mind? Hmm? What is your mind? So now, the meditation, what is, what is this mind? This is mind. This begins very simply. It begins by observing the activity of your eye. 
Very simple. How do you see? And then, you know all, I've taken you through the steps of that so many times, you don't need an answer. Then we have the activity of the ears. How do you hear? Then we have uh, the activity of touch. How do you feel? Hmm? And of smell and of taste. All these senses that lead to the mind. Hmm? Everything is connected here in the mind. And so we have find that going through this thing that uh, we're meditating now on the human mind. And then we take it a step further. What about the mind of the trees and the weeds and the flowers? Do they have a mind? Do they not have a mind? What happens with fire and water and earth, these elements? Is there a mind present or not a mind present? When we really meditate, when we have this, you know, samadhi, really meditate on our own mind, and then we discover that uh, we see this phase of the mind, the mind of the vegetable, which does not think. You know, plant life existed before us. We have just simply carried it along. Hmm? Rocks existed before us. We have carried this along. It is in our body. Hmm? So it is part of our mind. So this, what is called the no-thinking mind, is already here, very present in us. We're not sitting and sitting and sitting trying to create a state of mind or create a mind which we think would be suitable. And then we begin to observe this no-thinking mind with a thinking mind. Mind upon mind. Now you can begin. The practice of meditation. Every time you sit for meditation, now you can begin. You know, it, it's, I'm sure a great many of you have experienced the same thing. I used to do it all the time. Over there when I lived on 10th, I'd sit, 
something was about to happen, and I knew it. But it was late, and I, I had to go to bed, so I went to bed and thinking, tomorrow night I'll pick up just where I left off. Lots of luck, folks. It does not work that way. Every time you sit, a different state of consciousness. Time has changed. Everything about everything has changed. Heraclitus was right. You cannot step into the same stream twice. Every time you sit, you get up to walk, you sit, it's a new beginning. New beginning. Every time. Every time you start, you get a new chance. New opportunity. Same mind. <laughs> the mind is always the same. Has been the same from day one. And will be the same until day zero of this whole planet. The mind is the mind. Consciousness changes. When I eat my dinner, now this applies to you as well as it does to me, eating dinner, my thinking mind does not digest the food. Now you know that, so you never even think about it. You only think about it when you're thinking something and it upsets your stomach because your emotions got in the way somehow. My thinking does not digest my food. Something else does that. There is some other power in here that digests food. Something other than my thinking mind. Something other than my thinking mind pumps this blood. And in the pumping, it circulates it through the body. My hair and my nails don't sit there whispering to me that they're growing, so I should be aware of it. No, they don't. They just grow. Huh? I pay no attention to it until all of a sudden, oh, my hair is so long. And the girl used to say, everything you eat, Lola, goes to your hair. <laughs> hmm? And the nails are too long. <laughs> then they got problems. Wow, I didn't even want to that. Yeah. But they don't say anything to me. But something very alive in this body. Hmm? Something very alive besides all this human thinking. And if it is growing your hair, and if it's pumping your blood, and if it's digesting your food, and if it's breathing, shouldn't you know it? How else are you living except with this stuff? And all you're doing is thinking yourself away from it. Hmm? that I call myself, 
you know, my name is Lola, myself, my ego, you know. It's such a little tiny part of this whole particular existence. Hmm? You know, like they say, an iceberg, and one-tenth of it is above water. Well, there are your tenths, all these tenths sitting around here. And what you don't see is what's important. Yeah. The senses operate. And uh, there is something in here that <clears throat> responds. I react to some of what my, what the, somehow I respond to what the senses report. I like and I don't like, you see. Very early on we started this discrimination. I think we started about the time, you know, two days old. Sometimes we get very highfalutin and we call it discernment. <clears throat> I cannot refuse to see the tree out there unless I close my eyes. I cannot refuse what I want to hear and what I don't want to hear. I cannot refuse to hear as long as I've got hearing. I can't say, noise, go away. Hmm. Because the sound, the, the atmospheric pressure, you know, it reverberates on the eardrum and there's the sound. Well, what are you going to do? The activities, the responses, and the seeing and the hearing do not belong to myself. They belong to something other that is here, not to the myself as I think of myself. But then, of course, that's only thinking. Huh? They're part of something within this overall whatever whoever I am, whatever I am, called a human being. Huh? Yeah. But little by little, <clears throat> observing ourselves, observing the functioning of the body, the eyes and the ears, and the touch, little by little, these sensations, you know, finally we come to this mind. And then we discover what we call ourselves. We discover this ego consciousness. And again, we discover this ego is a very small part of ourselves. But for some reason or another, 
it seems to have complete control. We have allowed it. Then comes some meditation on the mind itself. Hmm? Ignoring the thinking. We have learned all these different parts of the body, of ourselves. Breathtakingly, all of a sudden, we enter into a greater life. Now there is mind. And we have come upon it because we observed ourselves in our everyday actions, our everyday attitudes, our everyday responses, and have allowed nothing to slip away whereby we could hide. Hmm? We learn. We want this. We want to know this truth, which is so much greater than we are. And we learn, little by little, we learn that this mind is the door. This mind is the entrance. This mind, what is its shape? What is its color? What does it look like? What is your mind? See, looking at it this way, this, this, shall we say, this kind of religion, mind, huh? Through the mind. Yeah. This entrance is immediate because it's here. Everywhere you go, you take it with you. People build shrines. My shrine is here. certainly not a man. And it's not the Buddha that was born in India. It is the Buddha that exists everywhere. Now, Shakyamuni, through his experiences and his insights, decided that this immediate doorway, this direct entrance through the mind, I mean, it's direct, it's yours. You can walk into it anytime you want. 
this was his religion. That's how he got there. That's how he got to see everything. Hmm? And to us as human beings, 2,500 years later, uh, the descriptions that he gave, you know, have great significance. They do indeed. He hammered home in all of his talking that a human being had reached the Dharma and he had reached it through his own mind. Just think huh? of that falling upon the world. that a human being had reached the truth and that the way to the truth was very straight without any hindrances and within you. Of course, there are other ways you can go. Yeah. Um, many people, and you know, they sit and they turn their eyes up to the heavens. You know, in India it is a practice to roll your eyes up and around until you don't see any pupils anymore. And they're, you know, and um, <clears throat> the people, you know, they just want to reach something higher for themselves, for themselves and they go like this and they look up. Well, of course, in the Bible, it's heaven is up there, and um, in the Greek thing, all the gods were up there, and in India, all the gods were up there. So naturally, twenty thousand years later, we're still doing the same thing. Something higher is in the sky. It's higher than us. Sometimes that's not very convenient, to say the least. Why do you suppose, I mean, because we do a lot of this supplicating in some ways or another, to try to get something that we hope for by asking someone else for it. Hmm? We do this. There is such a thing as true prayer. And it is an expression of a person's immediate desire. It is, in that moment, it just and it's very direct. I mean, because there aren't any words in it. If you're going to supplicate for something like a, 
a new car, a new house, or whatever, you know. And then, then you begin to ask, may I have this, may I have that? And it's funny, we do ask somebody else for it. But if you reach the end of the line and you, you really want help, there, there aren't any words, it just, it's like a bolt of lightning that goes when you really want help. You know, and it's, it's kind of like, <clears throat> you know, and with that kind of a thing, too, you get an answer. That directness. The other way, maybe, maybe not. Because, you know, in, in this kind of practice where you have to face someone, you face a barrier, let us say, there can come, you know, a moment of extremity where you have a direct expression. It's like a cat, you know, you've been sitting there like a cat at a mouse hole. And then you're ready to spring. If you call for help, you must be in a position, position to receive it. If you're not in a position to receive it, it's just going to go right on by. If we're just, you know, please, I need something, I want something, we begin to bargain in this so-called prayer, you know, and we offer a gift for whatever we want. It gives us a feeling we're going to get an answer. Dear God, if you grant me this one favor of letting me have this, I'll never lie again, not to you. <laughs> really? Yeah. So here, instead of bargaining, you work for an answer. You put yourself on the line. Hmm? Not in any way of making some kind of a payment, but getting yourself in a position to receive. This is what it's about. You're putting yourself in a place to receive. Meditation is, is just doing your part, you know. It's our work. We offer ourselves for the gift of knowing ourselves. We offer this body and this energy for the gift of a spiritual body and a spiritual force. We offer our human deluded consciousness for spiritual awareness. And we work for it. We apply ourselves to it. We offer the ego for a non-ego state. And if your desire is natural, and it is true, it will be answered naturally. 
all the discoveries that we make on this so-called journey, this quest or this way. The entrance to all of it is the mind. To hold this mind steady, to hold it in focus right into the core of ourselves, and just allow, which means get out of the way. And it allows this little busy body here that thinks it knows so much, that always wants to be in the center of everything. You've got to be the manager. Even got to be the manager of God, of course, which is what it's trying to do. You know, have you ever noticed that as long as we are in command of the whole thing, we have a great deal of difficulty looking at ourselves? It's when the other comes around that we can look, when we are vulnerable. We're too involved, you know, in having things come out our way. And if you've got to have things come out your way or my way, then how can you honestly look? And supposing it is not going to come out your way, then what are you going to do? Hmm? Where will you go? If you let go, well, here comes fear, which is maybe why we wanted to manage in the first place. You know, we're not always reasonable people. But we can be, you know. Hope springs eternal. But it must begin with our willingness to do whatever is necessary. Devotion alone isn't going to do it. It's what you do about it. And the doing in this instance is quite simple. You hold a focus and you get out of the way for certain little periods of time. What's so difficult about that? Hmm? What is so frightening about that? Everything that's around is still you. Everything that you see and hear is still you. The tree out there, that's an image in you. Everything is you. <clears throat> yeah. Now we started out here uh, talking about the Buddha's birthday. And I want to talk a little more about the birthday. <clears throat> there is a story about a Roshi in Japan and he is in the lineage of Miyoshinji, which we are also. So. 
and as a boy, he didn't know what his birthday was. And he would ask his mother, and she would be very vague, oh, somewhere in April. Hmm? And uh, but so he knew it was somewhere between the the first and the twenty-first of April, somewhere in there. Was his birthday. And as it so happened, when he was about fourteen, he went to stay at a monastery. And at this monastery, the Roshi arranged a tea ceremony for his new students. They were young. And there were four of them. And uh, invited to this tea ceremony were the resident monks, of which there happened to be two. So there's two resident monks and four newcomers, four boys. A very poor temple. And with this tea ceremony, they all received one cookie and one cup of tea. And it must have been extremely difficult for this Roshi to put out even one cookie for that many people. They were that poor. Now, for this particular young boy to have tea with these students and these monks was a very important occasion. It was a tremendous adventure. And he was very nervous about following protocol. Japan is, is very important. And he fumbled his way through the ceremony by watching the others to see how they drank their tea and how they ate the cookie. I mean, it is important that you do things properly. The tea had cup has to be turned around three times, and the, the cookie, you know, you put out a little part of it for the Buddha or whatever, and, and uh, you know, it's got to do things right. And evidently, for some reason or another, he had never gone to a real tea ceremony before in a, in a monastery type of situation. Anyway, after they finished, the Roshi rose, and he looked at the monks with a very knowing eye, as they are wont to do. <coughs> and he said um, to the monks, uh, I'm not going to ask you any questions today, but I will direct a few to these young students. And of course, all these young students gulped, and uh, all this worry rose. And their worry confronted them. Hmm? Yeah. They thought, of course, it was a Roshi, but it was their own worry that confronted them. And then the Roshi continued, I will ask the questions of you in the order in which you entered the temple. And this young boy, in whom we have an interest at this moment, sort of relaxed because he was the last one in. So he could watch the others and listen to what they said, and uh, maybe it would help him. So this master began, and he started with the first student, and he said, uh, how old is the Buddha? And uh, that one uh, thought for a while, and finally he said, well, the Buddha was 2,500 years old. 
you know, he was born 2,500 years ago, so he's 2,500 years old. And the other two answered something along the same line, and perfectly logical, hmm? how old is the Buddha? Now, this fourth student, you know, his, it's his turn, and he's been sitting there trying to come up with something that would be presentable. But he couldn't think of anything, and so finally, at the last minute, he, he said to himself that the first thought that came into his mind would be his answer. And when it was his turn, his, the answer fell out of his mouth, and the Roshi turned to the other, saying, This youngster is ready to begin zanzen practice tomorrow. And this young man found out later that his answer was just barely passing. Well, so the next morning comes along, and here's his Zen practice. He was sitting there, and he was learning how to meditate. And they were showing how to sit, how to stand. And, <clears throat> and so then the Roshi is walking around again, and he says to this young man, Well, what is your age? And uh, he, the, the kid wasn't sure, you know, when his birthday was, even. So, and he was very, this is a very insecure place for him, very insecure. And he decided that the Roshi must know this, it's because, you know, that he didn't know his own birthday. And, uh, and but the whole thing, that didn't make any sense. But he didn't know what else to think about it, you know? In one way, what difference did it make when it was, what is his birthday? What difference did it make? What would that have to do with his being a monk? What difference would that have to do with his meditation? Yeah. Anyway, you know, what's this all about anyway? What am I doing here anyway? Well, and after several days of sitting, it doesn't make any sense, you know. But he finally, after about a week, he finally came to the conclusion that this isn't at all what the Roshi meant. Not at all. And he came to the point where he realized that the Buddha's birthday and his birthday were the same. They were both in April. The same. And so when the Roshi confronted him, when he went in to confront the Roshi, why? <coughs> the Roshi only said one word bad. Then he repeated the word, bad, bad, bad. <coughs> and many, many days passed, weeks passed. It was no longer summer. It was winter. And one day, He was sweeping, and it was cold, cold. And he noticed through an open window that it, the sleet was falling, cold. And his eyes fell upon his sleet, and he realized this was his birthday. Now, he didn't know if this was good or bad, but he was very happy about it. This 
his birthday. So when the Zen practice came about again, and he went again before the Roshi and told him his answer, this Roshi looked at him and said, hmm, so you are born now. Good. And he came to realize that the birthday he had been so vague about was not the important one. But his birthday began when he realized himself. And this, the realization of himself, was what was important. It doesn't matter what day it is simply a matter of being born. Now, wouldn't it be important to you to realize your birthday? To realize, to have a birthday, to have a birthday is to realize oneself as a birthday. It would be very nice if you could come in tomorrow and tell me I have had a birthday, that this is my birthday. But in the meanwhile, <laughs> what about your mind? That is the entrance to the birthday. Hmm? What about your mind? What is mind? Okay? I thank you very much. If you find Lola's talks valuable, more will be posted in weeks to come.